I don't know if you noticed this in verse 6, but it's a little easily overlooked thing on our way to where we're at. Moses, of course, has spent 40 years in the wilderness. That's a rough place for a guy that had been raised in the first 40 years in the lap of luxury. But remember those first few years before handed over to Pharaoh's daughter, being nursed by his mother. If you read verse 6, something interesting happens when God speaks to Moses. What does he call himself to Moses? How does he introduce himself? The God of what? What was it? Yes, the God of your father. Not fathers. I mean, fathers, we get the idea of ancestors, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We get that idea. But understand that God before that takes Moses into something infinitely more personal. I mean, more than just, remember that God of the Bible in the Old Testament that did really cool things and caused fire and rain and brimstone and opened up the earth and crazy things seemed to happen and now he seems to be working in such mundane ways. Well, no, no, no. This, there's something that happened in those early years when Moses was being cared for by his mother. But apparently dad was there too. And I got to tell you, that's a great thing. Something we don't see a lot in this country. But somewhere in it, there's a father who spoke to him about his God. Not just the God of great, 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 great grandpa, Jacob. Or his father, Isaac, or his father, Abraham. But his God. And if you are a parent, please never underestimate the power of sharing your God. Now, I'm not saying the God you make up. No, the God of the Bible that isn't just God or the God, but your God. And in and, and this, God says, look, I'm the God of your dad. Your dad knew from Genesis 15 that they would be a promise that after 400 years of slavery, a generation would rise up and go home. A generation would leave this place. And the math is simple. As a father, if I knew the generation after mine would be the generation for which this country would be revolutionized, how I would stare at my own children differently. Although I do believe that to some extent. I just also am selfish enough to believe that I'm part of it too. And I look at that and I think, ah, sit tight. This is it. That slavery is almost over. That bondage is almost done. Now we get to this point where God is speaking. Moses' shoes are removed in the hot, hot sand, 40, 50 degree weather outside. He's in the back of the Midianite desert, somewhere, by the way, near the Red Sea, because that's where the Midianites relatively lived, although they were relatively, um, you know, sort of uh, Bedouins by nature. And God speaks about who he is. He always starts with that. I hear the cries. I, I see this. I see their pain. I see their bondage. I hear the cries. And I know their, I know their grief. I know their sorrow. I know it. I don't just know about it. I know it. 
It's not just a God that's some infinite watchmaker that's standing outside somewhere of our own domain watching this thing like some kind of sporting event. He's personally involved. And it's so comforting to know that that in this country, if God were to come down right now and speak and say, I know. I know the cries of the people who are pretending to think it's great to be drunk when they know they're not. To see the bondages of the people that are going from one relationship to another, or one internet image after another, one bottle after another, one Coke smack after another, one crack hit after another. I know it. I know it well. I know that pain. So I'm going to go and deliver. And at that point, which one of us wouldn't say, Amen. Amen. God, come down, deliver Camden, deliver London, deliver this country, our country. God says, good. Now that we're in agreement, verse 10, come now, therefore I'm sending you. And the fanfare stops. And the argument begins. In verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I? Now, up to this point, God said, I know, I see, or I should say, I hear, I see, I know, I feel, I'm coming down, I'm going to deliver, I send you. And the equation was perfect until the me came in it. And so he says, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? If there was a title for this message, it's what's the big deal with me? God never argues your qualifications when he's discussing your calling. Follow me on this little trail for a moment, if you would, and we're going to get right back into our text. First of all, in 2 Timothy 3, God warned us that in the last days, perilous times would come. Philippe says, it's the idea of all the walls coming in at you at one time. Those of you who are old enough to remember the original Star Wars movies and those movies where they were thrown in a trash compacting room and the walls came in and the ceiling closed in. That idea, and you know, you ever feel like that in life? It just feels like no matter which way you turn, it's just pressing in on you. And he says, that's what the last days will be like. And the first thing he says is men will be lovers of themselves. Strange, God doesn't say that was a good thing. That's part of what's driving the walls closer, and yet you go out there and they're like, you can't love anyone until you love yourself. Now, understand, the word love, scripturally, is to be selfless, so it doesn't even make sense. That's like me saying, you can't spend any money on anyone else till you spend it all on yourself. Like, that doesn't make any sense. You can't be totally selfless with someone else till you're totally selfless with yourself. (laughs) How does that play out? And he goes, look at in the last days, it's going to be all about you. All about your esteem. Now, you know what self-esteem is, right? How do you feel about yourself? And I've been in Canada on one of the trips with a band I was with. We went and we toured this juvenile center where it was sort of kids under 18 that had been arrested for small crimes like the one I was speaking with, stabbed one of his classmates to death with a pencil. Um, and he stabbed him several times, and I asked him, well, do you feel bad about what you've done? He says, yeah, the thing I feel really bad about is that I got caught. And I thought, boy, am I glad you locked up. 
Mm-mm. And, and the, the person that was his counselor said, well, he's starting to feel good about himself. Well, what's he feeling good about? Well, how creative he was with the way he murdered this person. And I think you want Jimmy to feel good about himself because he used a pencil. It's a shame he didn't use a knife like everyone else. Good job, Jimmy. Way to be inventive. And I'm thinking and the whole point of that is, is there's a big difference between self-esteem and God-esteem. What makes me feel so valuable isn't who I feel in myself. It's the one who knows me better than I do, who loved me so much that he died on the cross for me. And that's a radical thought. And the reason I say that is, is that it always seems to go back down to me when God starts saying, I want to do something awesome. And do you mind to come? Would you like to come with? I want to use you. Now, follow me on this. The first thing, by the way, there's two specific things that God personally involves himself with that are really life-transforming moments. And the first is when he saved you. The question is, what condition were you in when he saved you? Well, here's a few scriptures so you know I'm not making this up. In Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were yet sinners. In Romans 5, 10, it says, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse, 20, verse, uh, t- verse 4, it says, God who is rich in mercy because of the great love in which he had for us, which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive. This was the condition you were in when God saved you. Ready? You were a sinning, dead enemy. Now, which one of you thinks, perfect, that's the person I want to adopt? Because that's what God's doing here. God's in the business of adopting, and he says, let's just look through the orphanage of the earth and see who's adopt ready. Let's see. And somebody says, well, I'm really sorry. You may not want this one. This one's dead. But see, God is the power over life and death, so that's not as thre- a threatening thing to him. But it's worse, because according to Ephesians 2, it says, in which we walked. So he's a zombie. He's not just dead, he's a zombie. He's a walking dead person, remote controlled by the enemy. It says, which we sought to fulfill the lust of our eyes and flesh were by nature children of wrath, controlled by the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So let's put all of that together. You're in the orphanage and you're looking for a child. And they're going, well, here's one and this child's dead, but it's walking around remote controlled by your enemy. And really the whole thing is just heading into destruction. And you go, that's perfect. Well, it's your enemy and constantly is living in a way to really muck themselves up and to really kind of ruin the relationship between you two. God's just perfect. Now, in the end of it all, in every one of those verses, it revolves around a simple thing. And that is in this, God demonstrated his love. You see, by the time that you get saved and you say yes to this gift, and if you haven't, I'm going to give you that choice today. Jesus died on the cross so that all your guilt and mine could be paid for. All of it. Not just what you did, what you thought you were going to do, what you wanted to do but didn't, what you couldn't but you wish you could. And by the way, later on, what you still wish you could and then went, well, how can I feel this way? And I'm I'm a Christian. God died for all of that too. And he so loved you that he willingly sent his own son and Jesus willingly went to the cross so that there would be not a single sin, not a single wrong thing that hasn't been paid for. Now, you were his enemy. You were a sinner and you were dead when when Christ said, I'll die, I'll die for you so that your death could be paid for. So how could you earn that? How could you possibly earn that? In the end of it all, we come to one conclusion, his Love alone over my sin, over my guilt, over my enmity, over my death, his love alone. So I know that I know that in the end of it all, there was one thing that was really sad in my lap, which is whether I would be brilliant enough to say yes to that gift. 
Hello? I think the most amazing thing in the world is that people say, can I have another option? What, you want to buy what God wants to give you, which you can't purchase? So I get the idea there that I was not qualified in any manner. But here's the problem. The world I live in is performance-based. It's how good-looking or not I am, how socially gifted I am or not. It's how well I do something or not. And we are, of course, in two weeks where that is really emphasized. There is a girl that is going to become one of the most famous people in England for the next few years because she jumped and ran and hopped and did a few other things. And she did them extremely well. And by the way, hats off to her. Congratulations. But there are people that are like, oh, I wish I could have done that like her. Because look at all those people cheering for her as she tears up. And that's not traditionally British. And, you know, how, be- how beautiful. And she just has that look like she felt so wanted. And then I think, well, gosh. And we write songs. God, I just want to know what you see in me. If God really told us, I think we'd really not like it. <laughs> you really don't want to know what God sees in you. And it isn't like God looked and went, I see a lot of potential. Well, he did see a lot of potential, but not for good. The good news is, is that we actually, I mean, if we have the power to kill people, be warmed and filled. But God, on the other hand, really genuinely loves us in the condition we were before we came to him. Here's the good news. You'll never have to earn God's love. See, God doesn't love you because you're so darn lovable. God loves you because he's love. And you'll never change his mind. Now we get to the area of being called. Well, what's the difference? Called now, God says, I actually have a purpose for you. Think of the first is, actually, you said, you, you kind of went to the recruiter's office and said, I'd like to join the army. And you know, they can say no. <laughs> and he kind of looked, and, and, and in the end of it all, said, really, you are, there's no reason in the world you could be qualified, but I'm going to let you in. But then at the end of it all, you're like, well, good. I'm ready to be a general. Good luck with that one. Someone's like, okay, guess what? We actually have a plan for you. We have a plan for you. And in that now, each person gets a position. Understand that's the idea of a calling. Now understand your calling is that God has given a beautiful recipe of this weird, quirky personality that he redeemed and is redeeming. And the gifts that he's given you, spiritual gifts. Now, the difference between a gift and a talent is a talent gets something done on earth. A spiritual gift accomplishes something for eternity. And he gives every one of us a recipe of spiritual gifts. Some are like, I wish I knew what my spiritual gift was. As if somehow God gave you one. Well, that's a dangerous thing because somehow everyone assumes that the pastor has all of them. Have you noticed that? Well, you know, you should be out there evangelizing. And then when you're done, I want to see some prophecy. And then when you're done with that, I want some tongues. And then heal this person over here. And go, well, yeah. And then while the rest of you, it's like a spectator sport, right? Like I'm the guy doing the heptathlon and the rest of you can go, yeah, right, right, go get a pastor. God never intended that. Could you imagine? You all join the, the army, the same army that I joined. And in the end of it all, the Lord says, I pick you. Go to battle. The rest of you can watch. Oh, yeah. Does that really happen? And part of that is, is what the enemy says is, well, if you get a gun, you need to practice on each other, shoot each other. And then you realize why it is. And you're like, I don't feel like I should go anywhere. Well, listen, when you were called, when I was called, we weren't qualified then either. First Corinthians, by the way, makes it really clear. And listen to this. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 26. Now you see your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were noble. God has chosen the foolish. Can you say foolish? Foolish. 
things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak, can you say? Weak. Things of the world to shame the mighty. The base. And that's not like, base is like, well, where's the base on something? It's at the bottom. The bottom dwellers. Yeah, be warmed and filled. You're the one scraping at the bottom, getting that little scummy stuff that sits on the bottom of your fish tank. Yeah, you're at the bottom of it. And the despised. Despised. Yeah, who likes that group, right? And my favorite, and those that are not. The are not. What's an are not? I mean, I am something, right? I think, therefore, I am. I thought, I thought. So maybe I, therefore, I thought, maybe I am. Well, listen, have you, have you ever had anyone? That's got you dizzy, didn't it? Did you ever have anyone look and just go, you know, I just see no potential in you whatsoever. That's an are not. <laughs> I didn't mean to open up a sore subject. Follow, follow me on this. God has a purpose in that. Listen, he's chosen these things. To bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. That's the purpose. Getting saved was his love over everything. Do you get that? My calling is him alone over my foolishness, my weakness, my inaptitude. Okay, so the reason is that it's really, pardon me to say this, it's awesome to be ordinary. Strange. And the more you feel you're ill-equipped, weak, dumb, the more you qualify. So try arguing that with God. See how it works. Jeremiah says, but I'm just a youth. Jeremiah 1.7. God says, hey, don't worry about it. Did I, what, do you think I picked unwisely? I know everything. And, oh, I'm, what was I thinking? Could you get your dad? <laughs> Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Do you realize what that means? That means Isaiah just sort of walked out of a pub and he cussed some guy out on the way out there. And then God says, I have a calling on your life. Think about that for a second. Because chances are, Isaiah's friends would go, him? Oh, come on, really? Did you hear what he just said about that guy's mother? God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to take him to the barbecue. The barbecue? That's not fair either. Oh, no, no. Grabs a coal with the tongs. Boom on the mouth he goes. I'm not arguing that one. I think, wow, so it can't be about that. But wait a minute. If it's not about my, my, my uncleanness or about my youth, well, then we got Jonah. And Jonah's like, what? He's a guy with no compassion at all towards the people God sends him to. And here's the point. People want to argue over the issue of salvation, and that's such a dumb thing to argue because it just draws lines among Christians. But, you, but the bottom line is you can't choose your calling. And that's really where the focus of a lot of this God's choosing really goes. Now, you know what's strange is if I were to say to you, Amina, I choose you, she would be wise to go, <laughs> for what? It would be really silly if she just turned around and went, ha, ha, I'm chosen, I'm chosen, check me out, I'm chosen. You know, or what would that be? And people, people would be wise to say, for what? And she'd be like, I didn't ask. I'm just too busy being chosen. And then by that point, I'm going to have to choose someone else because she's too busy acting up instead of, you know. And the reason I say that is, is that God is looking. And then you think, well, Paul was unprepared for the Gentiles. And God says, perfect. That's why I pick you. 
He's like, but I want to go to the, to the Jew. God says, of course you want to go to the Jew. That's easy stuff for you. But it's not going to work out. I'd rather you want a place where you have to rely on me so that no flesh would glory in presence. Now, here's the dangerous thing. Now, I'm not telling you don't go to Bible college. I'm not telling you all that, but I'm telling you that like, even like we heard, wasn't it, wasn't it a wonderful story to hear about a guy that turns around and it seems like, you know, Nathaniel's like, I don't want to go. Lauren goes, just go ahead and go. And then he shares a little bit. And then someone gets saved and then someone goes, I'm sorry, you're unqualified. For what? Even Paul said, you really want a letter of commendation? Hello, you're at church because God used me there. And what, where do you want the letter from? The university that I didn't go to? The university of Gentile preaching? It's like, we haven't worked on that one yet. And here's the point. What God is looking for isn't the gifted, because he's the one who gives the gifts. That's kind of like looking at and saying, okay, well, I'm looking for somebody that's going to be a sharpshooter. And in the end of it all, none of us have ever shot a gun. And we don't have guns because they actually the boss is the one who hands them out. And you're like, well, he wouldn't pick me. I don't have a gun. He's like, well, he gives you the gun when he calls you to it. That's the point of it. What's well, that same text, by the way, back when we look at Isaiah? When the Lord actually does touch his lips in Isaiah 6, by verse 8, God says, now who will go for me? And Ezekiel, chapter 22, verse 30, it says, I sought a man among them who would, well, who would make a wall, who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I wouldn't destroy. And you know what? I found no one. See, what God's not looking for is the equipped. He he equips. He's not looking for the gifted because he gifts. What he's looking for is, is the willing. Do you know why I get to do this? Because I said yes. It's that simple. Does that make me awesome? The cross makes me awesome. The cross makes you awesome too, by the way. And here's the point. That's why God doesn't argue. So when Gideon, who's afraid, God doesn't argue with Gideon. Or when, as we see here, God calls Moses. As much as Moses wants to say, well, who am I and all this, God doesn't say, well, let me tell you who you are and how your background plays into it and how bright you are and you can speak Egyptian. That's going to come in handy. I mean, all this stuff. God doesn't argue with your calling because see, if he argued with your calling, then it would be about your performance again. God actually says, let's resolve it at the cross at your saving. So when I get to the calling, we can stop arguing over that stuff. If I did it all at the cross to save you, then what part did you have to earn here? Did you get that? Think of it this way. This is a fanfare trumpet. Now, there's two basic kinds of horns, the shofar and this. This is the one that calls people to battle, right? Okay, now, are you ready to fight with that? Get you all riled, didn't it? Okay, now follow me on this for a second. When it becomes about me, we use a term when people talk about themselves, tooting their own horn. Have you ever heard that? Okay, so here you are, and you're kind of like trying to make everyone like you. You're trying to make sure that God knows how redeemable you are, so you're kind of walking around, hey, I mean, let me tell you what I did today. Okay, and let me tell you, and I'm really cool, and I, and I memorized six verses, and I prayed for an hour and a half. Right? And while all this is happening, while I'm tuning my own horn, guess what I'm not hearing? The horn that God's blowing to see who's going to come to the line in battle. God's going... And I'm too busy going, and let me tell you what else. I'm a pastor. You know, that's really cool. And you know what? I got a church now. How many people? Oh, it doesn't matter. Lots. We've got lots of studies. 
Right? And you know, here's the point of it. I could be so busy blowing my own horn, God's calling people that, by the way, are just willing, and I can't hear that because I'm too busy trying to tell God how important I am. God's like, look it, if you can't figure out how important you are at the cross, how dumb is it now for you to try to prove how important you are by your performance? So, somehow I win the lottery, which would be a little bit strange since I'm still not a permanent um, resident or whatever they call it here. Oh, I will. What do they call that? Anyways. Um, see, I don't even know yet. Um, and uh, citizen, thank you. And I win the lottery and I look and I think, you know what? Sister Ange really needs a house. She may start praying for me to win right now, but I don't even play the lottery. But I'm going to buy you a house, right? I want to find something really nice. You know what? I thought you could probably use something, I don't know, like Hampstead Heath. Some place where you could walk the dog that, that we're going to give you. Um, anyways, and, uh, and in that, and so, and, and so, okay, so, and, and, and by the way, it isn't because, I mean, this is always important about grace or about a gift. A gift is never about the deservedness of the recipient, because it isn't a gift then. It's always about the kindness of the giver. You get that? It's always reliant on that. And so with that, so I do. So I'm like, okay, you know what, here, I'm going to give you this place. Couple mil, who cares? Here you go. Just enjoy it. It's free. Go for it. And then somewhere down the line, about two weeks, she moves everything in. And then she says, you know, I'd like to pay you back. I kind of get a widow's dowry. And so I think I could probably give you 15 pounds a month for the rest of my life. <laughs> what, what do you think? How do you think I would take that? I'd be like, and, and what's that supposed to do? And it's like, and she's like, because that'll make me feel a lot better about the fact you gave this to me. And I'd be like, well, it won't make me feel better. Make me feel worse. I'd rather you just celebrate the fact that I was kind. How much more the Lord when you think you're going to pay him back for something that you could never possibly pay him back for? And here's the strange thing. When I make this all about me, this big deal about me, well, then I make it a little deal about him. And that's the irony of the whole thing. It's like, well, what's the big deal with me? Well, what's the little deal with him? Now, listen to this verse, because it's, I don't know if you've ever really given it any thought. Jesus has said it, by, by the way, twice in Matthew, Matthew 20, verse 14 and 22, 14, or 20, 16, 22, 14, which is, many are called, but few are chosen. So let me ask you, are more called than chosen? That's the, only option, that's the only answer you can get that. There are more people that will be called than will be chosen. So God calls more people? Well, then who does he choose? Those who answer their call. So, on your own spiritual mobile, God calls and you have, and you have a caller ID. And it says God. And you're like, mm, do I answer this? I know, we, I know what's going to happen. He's going to send me to Zimbabwe. I hate Zimbabwe. He's going to send me to India. And, you know, there are places there where mm, I have to, like, live on iodine and charcoal. Really? Really, God? And you don't know. You don't know. But you know this. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a plan for your life. And it's not going to be the plan you have for your life because your plan involves comfort. His plan involves glory. And you're like, hmm, do I answer this? Do I answer this? Um, hello, please leave a message because I'm busy praying. 
Beep. How insane. Friends, nobody has the call God has on my life but me. Nobody has the call God has on your life but you. And I would make a terrible one, although sometimes it's kind of close, but I don't make a terrible one. <laughs> yeah, ask your wife once I answered your phone and she thought it was you. Uh, anyways. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I said, hold on, before you say anything embarrassing, let me give you to your husband. Please, please follow me, friends. It would be such robbery. It would be such robbery. It would be such robbery if you didn't take your calling. Because there are lives that are going to be touched by you, through God, through you, that I'll never get near. Case in point, Nathaniel. Case in point, Lauren. And you know what's so beautiful? Well, follow me on this. Nathaniel and I and Bruno are walking, and Jeffrey. We're walking, and we're all, this is hypothetical, we're all 19 years old. <laughs> so you know this is, this is its own imaginary place, right? We're all single, and we're all 19. And we all walk by, and we're in, the crowded, we're in a crowded underground platform. And Nathaniel says, there she is. Perfect. And he's fallen head over heels because he's looked at her, right? She's beautiful. Oh, I know who you're talking about, says Jeffrey. That one, right? He goes, no, 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 not that one. That girl, I don't have any interest in that girl. Jeffrey's like, why not? She's everything that a guy could possibly want. Giant shoulders, big arms, giant feet. Jeffrey's like, that's what I love. Nathaniel turns and he goes, no, no, no. The hairy girl next to him. That's what I love. I love a girl that looks like a carpet. Oh, and... Okay, and here's, here's the, and, and the reason I say that is, is that there's something that God puts in you that's strange because though the world may dictate certain things, it's like there's certain people that are just like drawn and you look and you, you look at them and you look at them and you go, how? And you don't know, but inside them there is this thing that you, by the way, it defies all science. You can't put a science behind it. You can't put a math behind it. You can't quantify it. It's just something supernatural. It's bizarre. Beyond just normal humans, there are these things inside of us that are just unique. And somebody's single because someone else hasn't met them yet. You've seen a million films like that. Because, you know, there's some people you kind of go, boy, I'm sure glad that person met their mate because I'm pretty sure there's nobody else on. Well, anyways, anyways, but the, the, the whole point of it, the whole point of it's this. And I want to get back into our text because we need to get back to Moses, who's barefoot in the sun, arguing with a bush. But in this, it's like, look, at the big deal will never be about you. The big I should say it this way. The big deal was about you at the cross. Have you said yes to that gift? Because if you've said yes to that gift. And the big deal's done. Now the big deal's about him. You know, it says in Psalm 34, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And I think about that and I think, how do you magnify infinity? I mean, how do you take something that's perfect and infinite and make it bigger? And then I realize, well, really, the bottom line in it all is that 
It isn't that we magnify it, we just bring it to light. The term is glorified, but when we do, it gets bigger because something else is held closer to me that looks so big until I actually compare it. I've said it before, you can take your fist, well, it's hard to do here in London most of the time, but you can block out the sun. Yeah, here you go. Um, you can block out the sun, but it doesn't make my fist bigger than the sun, I'm just holding it closer. And that's why we're to cast our cares before the Lord, because when we hold it so close, it looks so big. And then I throw it down at the feet of God, and it looks so small compared to the infinity of my God, because I stopped holding it so darn close. And it's I realize that, man, when we, it tells us in Scripture the whole idea of glorifying God is all about lifting him up so people could just see him for who he is. And then you realize he really is just gigantic. It's diminuinizing that makes him so makes us feel so weak because we forget who it is. Now, back in our text, believe it or not, we did get back there, but only for a second. Here's God's argument back. Moses' question is really simple. Who am I? Now, I imagine if I were one of the angels watching this, this would be a really funny thing to watch. God says, I've seen, I've heard, I know, I'm coming down, I'm visiting, I want, I love, I deliver, I'm pulling, I'm delivering. And Moses goes, well, how, how am I going to do this? Who am I? Well, he's got an eye problem. The eye is the wrong eye. And in that, God says, and here's his response, look at it with me. He says, I'll, I'll be with you. That's his response. Notice he doesn't ever answer Moses' question of who am I? Because the bottom line is, who are you? Can you just say one word? Loved. That's who you are. That's who you are. You're loved. That's who you are. Isn't that enough? How do I know he loves me? The cross. That's how you know he loves you. As a matter of fact, every time God wants to define love in Scripture, he always takes you there. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son as propitiation for our sins. Beloved, let us love one another. For God so loved us. For God's women, love is of God, but everyone who loves is born of God and follows God. But who doesn't love is not because God is love. Well, what does love look like? Well, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Where are we winding up here? We're winding up at the cross. And if you can't find love there, you'll never find it anywhere else. And now he goes, look, and I'm calling you. I have a calling on your life, James. I have a calling on your life, Nathaniel. I have a calling on your life, Joe. Joe says, well, who am I? God says, loved. But in regards to the calling, you need to know one thing. I'm with you. That should be enough. I'm, I'm with you. It's the same thing, by the way, that we're going to find throughout all of Scripture. To Isaac, by the way, in Genesis 26, twice in 26, he says, don't fear because I'm with you. Tell me if you can see what the common theme is. With Jacob, by the way, in Genesis 28, he says, and when Jacob's fleeing from his brother, he's freaked out. He's so fearful. And God says, stop it. I'm with you. With Joshua, who takes over Moses in Deuteronomy 31, he says, listen, he says, be strong and good courage. You know what it means to be of good courage? It means stop being so afraid because I'm with you. With Gideon, one of the most, one of the biggest scaredy cats in the world, God shows up, and in Genesis and Judges six sixteen, he says, "Look at, I'm with you." With Solomon, he goes, "I'm just a kid, and my dad's dead now. How do I handle this?" And God says in First Kings eleven thirty eight, "Look at, I'm with you, Solomon." And of course, Solomon should know that because it was his dad who wrote in, in Psalm twenty three about the Lord being a shepherd. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. 
or I'll fear no evil because why? Because you're with me. Isaiah 41.10 says, fear not because I'm with you. Isaiah 43.5 says, fear not because I'm with you. Jeremiah says to this kid, Jeremiah 1.8, don't be afraid of their faces because I'm with you. In Jeremiah 42, verse 11, don't be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. When God says, don't be afraid because you are, what does that mean? It means stop being afraid. That's what that means. Don't be afraid of him because I'm with you. Jeremiah 46, 28, don't fear because I'm with you. Haggai, when they're building the temple back again, Haggai 2, 4, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Now, if I'm unaware that God is with me, what seems to be the obvious product? You tell me. Fear. You see, fear is a focus on yourself. And the more I focus on me, it's the diving board into a pool full of fear. I am full of fear because all I'm thinking about is me. Do you know the opposite of selfishness is love? Love is just, in its simplest sense, selflessness. And it's First John that says, that perfect love drives out all fear. And that same Psalm 34 that says, magnify the Lord with me. It says, this man sought him and the Lord delivered him from all of his fears. God would like to deliver you today from your fears. Think about what your fears are based on. What if I, if I can't, what if they and happens to me? God's like, look at, I'm with you. Do you know why I shouldn't be afraid? Because he's with me. I'm going to call you to do things so crazy, you're going to giggle while they happen. If you told your friends this is what God's going to do, they would go, shut up. And God says, look at you're telling me that now. And God says, look at all you need to know is I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And that's enough. Well, who are you? If you're with me, who in the world are you? And you could see God going, are you kidding me? He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know who I am. And this is the guy he calls. Any of you find comfort in this? Boy, I do. So let's, let's run around with this text a little bit and then let's close this up, okay? And it's really simple. Just look at all the things that God says here as we close this up. I will certainly be with you, is verse 12. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you've brought the people out of Egypt and you, and you serve God on this mountain. Remember, that's the mountain he's going to get the Ten Commandments on. And there he is before all of this at his calling. Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say, Well, what's his name? What am I supposed to say? Well, what do I say to them? And God says in verse 14, I am who I am. Now, why is that important? Because everyone knew God as the I was. Remember, he was the God of great stories. Do you know God as the I am today or do you know him just as the God who did cool stuff in the Bible? You realize he still saves today. He still heals. He still delivers. He still transforms and he still rocks nations. And by the way, we get to be a part of that. God isn't the I was. And by the way, there are a lot of people that are even Christians. They would say he's the I am, but they still act like he was the I was. And it's been over 400 years since we've seen a big move of God in this time. And God's like, now it's time. You're going to see I am. You're not going to see the I was. I, was the, I am the one who was and is and is to come. The Almighty. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what everyone knew. Now think about what that is. Abraham was the God who called a man out of everything to go and follow him, to give him a brand new life. 
Isaac was the God who knows what it's like to be the one who to give you the bride. To bring love. To save you and pull you out from the dead. Jacob, the God who knows what it's like to take you out of your land and bring you back home. Is that the God you know? It's the God I know. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. Now go and gather the elders. You realize they'll take it a little easier than Pharaoh will. And say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have surely visited you. Let me tell you what kind of God he is. He's the God who visits. He's not the God who just stays from a distance and lets you work it out. He's the God who comes and he gets involved. He mucks with your life. He interferes. And glory to God, there are times I think the biggest problems you have with him is because you are running your own destruction. You don't even know it. And he gets in your way. And whether that's an angel with a sword drawn while you're kicking your donkey, or whether that's just God giving you a flat tire, or actually, you know, there's a signal failure. I'm on my way to a party. God says, no, you're not. Because I'm visiting you. He's not a God that's distant, that somehow you perform and at the end of it all, he goes, well, let's see if it's good enough. He's a God that loves to be involved in you because the whole thing about God, nothing is more important to God than your relationship with him. Nothing. And God is so jealous. He'll do great things to get you back to him. And I've seen what has done to you in Egypt. He's a God who sees. Verse 17, And I have said I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites to a land flowing of milk and honey. He's a God who brings up. That's what he does. Now, the word bring up for what it's worth, by the way, is the word arach, and the word means to ascend. In other words, he's a God who lifts up. He's a God who pulls you out of your gutter, out of your toilet, out of your ditch, out of your pit. He pulls you up. But he doesn't just throw a rope down. He goes down and he gets you and he carries you up. Praise God for that. Find that in another book. Then they will heed your voice. And you will come in the elders of Israel, the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let me tell you, he's the God who meets with us. That's who he is. And now please, let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand. And I think that's what our God is, a God who stretches out his hand. Interesting. Psalm 144, 7 and Proverbs 124. When a hand is stretched out, it is the place of rescue. But we know that. When you're drowning, how important it is to get that hand stretched out. Maybe today, that's your word. You just feel like you're drowning. And God, our God is a God who stretches out his hand. Not a God who says, swim harder. By the way, you're going to find that in everything else. Swim harder, maybe it'll be okay. God says, I know how well you swim or don't. You're drowning, and I love you enough to jump in and get you. By the way, God can't drown. He walks on that water. I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, and which I will do, which means he's a God who does wonders. Not just a God, please hear me, who did wonders. He's a God who does wonders. He saves Muslims. He delivers people from the homosexual lifestyle. Did I just dare say those things? Yes, I did. He pulls people out of all kinds of crack and heroin and other bondages and addictions. Because he's a God who does wonders. And if I didn't think that, I wouldn't be doing this. But he not only does wonders, notice what it says. Second, with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, he does them among us. He doesn't just do them so distant you can't see them. And after that, he'll let you go. So it's, it's going to be a rough road to get out of there. 
but you are going to get out. And it says, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you will not go empty-handed. And this is the greatest paradox of it all. Every woman, ladies, this is your part in it, will ask of her neighbor. Those are the people, by the way, who beat your husbands the day before. Namely, of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, in which you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and you will plunder the Egyptians. And it's a God who gives favor. By the way, it says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he even makes his enemies to be at peace with him. I think that's a crazy thought. So get the idea. God says, okay, for 400 years, you've been beat up as slaves. But I'll tell you what kind of God I am. I'm the God who's going to jump down in the middle of this thing and so mess with it that you're going to take that person who's been looking at you and browbeating you and calling you names and just not even saying you're a human being. And you're going to go to him and go, excuse me, but I've always admired that big chunk of gold that you have sitting on your piano. Can I have that? Oh, yeah, sure. Go ahead and take it. Oh, by the way, can I have your piano, too? Oh, yeah, that's a nice. Go ahead and take that, too. And that's what God says here is that by the time this thing is done, you're going to walk out with the riches of a place, by the way, that beat you up just days before. How can that happen? It doesn't make any sense. Does it have to? For in, technically, for God to do a wonder, technically, for God to do a wonder, it can't make sense. If it did, it wouldn't be so wonderful. Now, look, at, I want to bring this to close, but I want to ask you a couple of questions as we pray. What part of this is about you? The cross. That's what part's about you. What part about this is about you? The cross. Where God showed his love to you. That's where it's about you. And we tend to think somehow after that, it's like God's the coach and he's looking at his bench and you're his bench and he's going to go, okay, you. I really think you can do the drop shot. Some of you saw that horrible game where, where France beat England. I mean, with 0.2 seconds left and then to shoot just a second left. I'm not bitter. Anyway, but... Um, and you look at that and you're like, the coach goes, Angela, you and people then, you know, and, and Janae's going to go, well, of course, Angela, I know how she's, she's going to get, that means that God's calling someone to get into someone's face. That's what that means. Right. I, I know. And someone, as if that's the case, but see, this isn't the case. It isn't like God's looking at you guys like you're on the bench. Actually, God's opening up his prayer closet and there are jerseys. And at the jerseys, he wants to put one on. See, the difference is that you're not the athlete, you're the jersey. God's the athlete. And what he's looking for, strangely enough, with his living wardrobe, is he's looking at someone that goes, put me on, put me on, that doesn't want to fight him. Because if you're going to go out and do something, the last thing you want are clothes that are going to fight you. <laughs> Let's be honest. Could you imagine somebody's about to, you know, like they're running to do the long jump, and just at the last minute, oh, his legs got pulled back by his trousers, you know, and face into the sand, and he slides. And you think, how horrible would that be? See, what God's looking for, to be honest, is just a jersey that's willing to go with him. That's willing when he says, I'm going to move this way. It doesn't go. Why? <laughs> Could you imagine? You know, like you started to walk and your jeans said, whoa, 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 whoa. Before we go anywhere, where are we going? Because <laughs> there's some neighborhoods I don't want to walk through. Your shoes are like, look, you take two more steps in this direction. I'm untying and you're, I'm falling off of you the moment you kick your foot up. Don't even play the flip-flop game with me. And we could be like that, can't we? You know what? Isn't it beautiful? We get into the prayer closet and somewhere in it, what we really are is just the one that goes, pick me, pick me. I'll go where you want me to go. 
I'll do what you want me to do. Because in the end of it all, I don't even have to have strength. It isn't like the shirt goes, oh, I'm a strong shirt. Put me on, you'll be stronger, God. Look at it. It's just like, look at it. To be honest, I just... In, like, in, if you're part of me for saying, and I want to sound weird, but God could do the whole thing in the buff, but he doesn't because he really, well, not because it's disgraceful, but because, to be honest, he wants to give the jersey a blessing in it. He doesn't need you. And by the way, I think that's one of the coolest things, is that God doesn't need any of us, but he wants every one of us. And to be wanted to me is so much better, because that means someone had a choice, and they want me anyways. And he wants you. And so today, that's me, and that's the Lord's call. Which one are you going to follow? The me call or the Lord's call? Because today, the Lord's looking for jerseys. And the strange thing is, God's big enough. People go, how could God be the Son and the Father talking at the same time? He's God! He could be a chicken and a cow in a conversation. He'd do whatever he wants. How could God? But the moment you call him God, you can do whatever he wants. So if God actually opens up the closet, what do you think happens if in this room, 50, 100 jerseys, I'll say, pick me. Do you think God's going to go, well, you, but not you? God's big enough to put us all on. And I love it when we take the field. 